Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Sergeant William Say. Say was serving with the 62nd Transportation Company, part of the 7th Transportation Battalion, in the 48th Transportation Group during the Vietnam War. Specifically, we're going to talk about time during a convoy that took place on August 25th, 1968, in the southwest portion of of South Vietnam. Now, to back it up a little bit, let's talk Vietnam at a high level, and then we're going to get into some issues around driving these convoys all throughout the country. So Vietnam, the conflict as as we look at it from the United States and and the American involvement in Vietnam really makes sense to to go back to 1945, the end of the Second World War. Vietnam or Indochina was occupied, controlled by Japan as the Japanese empire was expanding. And then after Japan surrendered to the Allies, everywhere that they had control there was the creation of a power vacuum, which makes sense, right? It happened all around the world. It's happened all around the world every time a war ends when there's some place that used to be under control of country A and now country A is gone. There's a little bit of a power vacuum. It's rare that things just go back to normal like nothing had happened. Vietnam is going to be one of those areas where the power vacuum is created and very, very quickly um, – the to be leader of what we would refer to what we now know as North Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh decided great news. There's a power vacuum. I'm going to step in and create a communist style government for our now freed country. And you can imagine in 1945, kind of as the cold war is, is really formally picking up, there's going to be some concern. So the concern here is really stems out of, I mean, I'm going to try to simplify some of the more complex issues throughout throughout world history in the last 50 years, but but we're even a shot. There are still, the French still have very um, significant interests, commercial interests in, in Indochina and in Vietnam. They don't want to see Vietnam go the route of communism and align with the Soviet Union, with China and with North, North Korea, eventually North Korea. They would rather see a more democratic Western style government. Again, remember cold war, it's, it's one or the other is kind of the viewpoint. You're either with us or you might be against us. So there's going to be some conflict in Vietnam between the French and the uh, Vietnamese forces. By 1954, there's going to be an agreement reached um, called the, uh, at the Geneva Convention that's decided we're going to split the country. And we've seen this a couple times throughout history, especially following the Second World War. We're going to split the country. We're going to have two different areas of control, two different areas of influence, North Vietnam, you do your thing. South Vietnam, you do your thing. And the way that went then was North Vietnam North Vietnam followed the path of um, communist government with Ho Chi Minh. And then South Vietnam was leaning more towards the democratic free market capitalism kind of Western um, style government. Now, from 1954 on, that doesn't, you know, everything wasn't resolved then. And there were tensions. This is one country that we split up, right? So there's families separated. There's, there's people in the South that 
it, think of it with the United States and the Civil War, right? If you just drew a line, there were still people in the North that supported the South. There were still people in the South that supported the North. There were families split up. You just know that it's not going to be a good long-term solution, especially now looking back. You can see how easy it would be for this thing to kind of, at the very least, have kind of an underlying tension in their history. Well, there's there's violence, there's protests, there's, you know, the same thing we'll see in, in the same thing we saw in Korea, we'll see in Vietnam, where the idea is we'd like to unify the country, but the the terms of that unification are, are never going to be easily agreed upon. The South wants certain terms, the North wants certain terms, they don't want the other one's terms. What we start to see by the United States, really by the early 60s, we're going to have troops in Vietnam, we're going to have advisors in Vietnam from various government agencies, as well as the military, pretty early on. By the early 60s, 63, 64, definitely 65, we're going to see an uptick in American forces. And the reason for that is we look, we're looking at the situation in Vietnam, and it just looks like South Vietnam is not going to be able to hold on. They don't look like they're strong enough to fend off this push, overt or covert, from North Vietnam. There weren't necessarily North Vietnamese tanks rolling across this demilitarized zone that was stood up. But there's subversion. There's, there's, you know, maybe we could even call, in a sense, some of it terrorism. Um, I think maybe insurgency is the better way to put it. If you talk to somebody in North Vietnam at the time, they'd probably use the term revolution, and and that always depends which side of the argument you sit on. Is it an insurgent or a revolutionary, a freedom fighter, or a terrorist? Right. That's what we're watching happen in Vietnam. We start to increase our troop levels on the ground to where really they reach a peak by about 1968. And the idea generally for the United States is if we can tip the balance of power strong enough in favor of the South Vietnamese forces, then North Vietnam won't be able to exert influence or control or, God forbid, topple the South Vietnam government. And as we know now, there was the term mission creep's been used, but there is just this escalation. And if you look back at the troop levels in the war, it just went up, 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 and kind of peaked around 1968. And then it started to come down, almost like we decided, I don't know, you know, maybe we can't get this job done, period. Maybe we aren't willing to commit the resources needed. It Maybe we don't have the right strategy. Maybe it's not a priority. Any number of things by about 1968, and one of the reasons that we start to head down that path is something known as the Tet Offensive. The Tet Offensive kicks off in early 1968, January, February of 1968. And it was a concerted effort by North Vietnam all across the country. The idea well, all across South Vietnam, excuse me, it was North Vietnamese and Viet Cong forces in an offensive operation all across South Vietnam. And the idea behind the Tet Offensive was the thought that South Vietnam is just it's on thin ice. The government and the people are on thin ice. They're, they're not supportive of, of these American soldiers in their country. Um, there might be some animosity towards the Americans. You know, we, we weren't saints in South Vietnam. We had a very hard time discerning the difference between a village that supported the Viet Cong and that would kill Americans and a village that didn't have any other choice. We, we, we made a lot of good decisions and the troops on the ground, a lot of, you know, did the best they could, but 
it's not crazy for the North to look at the situation in the South and say, hey, the people there might be fed up. The people there might not, as a whole, want the Americans there. They might be looking for an alternative. And there was a little, you know, maybe a little propaganda, a little, um, I don't know that the thinking was was fully accurate. At the highest levels in North Vietnam, there's kind of been mixed reports. Some say that that the viewpoint was, hey, this government's ready to topple. The South Vietnamese government, we just need to give it a little push. And there were others saying, hey, it's not quite that bad, but it wouldn't hurt to kick off this offensive. The Tet Offensive was brutal. They focused on city centers and towns and villages all across the country, kind of a, a coordinated attack all across the country. And the reason it was such a big deal was in the United States, we were at this point in the war, end of 1967, early 1968, saying, hey, we're wrapping this thing up. We're killing Vietnam, North Vietnamese soldiers and Viet Cong fighters by the dozens. They're, they're running out of troops. We're, we're closing in on the end of this war. And then this Tet Offensive kicks off where there's, you know, an estimated five to 600,000 enemy troops taking part in this. And you have to step back and say, what? I thought you just said that they were done, that, that, that we were on the way out. And the Tet Offensive goes on for a long time. It's kind of broken out into a couple different phases, we'll call. The major one is January to March, phase one of 1968. There's a little bit of a phase two in May to June. And then finally, phase three is about a month from August to September. So you're ta- let's talk 10 months for the Tet Offensive. During that 10-month time, you would see casualties. The United States would lose over 4,000 service members. Nor- the, the estimates from North the estimates of North North Vietnamese and Viet Cong troops is is in the category of seventeen thousand killed. Estimates again, it's a brutal fight for a period of time there, and it's during this third phase that we're going to get into our story with Sergeant William Say. The third phase of the Tet Offensive, and it's kind of loosely grouped together, right? The Tet Offensive really is that initial strategic push all across the country. The third phase in August and September is going to be focused in the southwestern part of the country. And in that southwestern part of the country are a few areas known as Tay Ninh and Long Bin. These are the two outposts. They're about 50 miles apart that Sergeant Say and his men are tasked with moving supplies between. Now, this gets us into a whole other issue that we haven't talked about before, and that's the idea of moving supplies around a battlefield when you don't necessarily own the terrain. So if we need to move supplies in the United States from Illinois to, to Florida, no problem. Throw it on a truck. You can do one truck loaded full of, you know, you've seen it on the interstate when you're driving around, right? There's been a tank on the back of one, an artillery piece or Humvees. It's no problem. There's no thought. We're, we're, we're behind friendly lines, we'll call it. It's no issue moving men, material, and supplies within the United States. When you end up in a place like Vietnam or Iraq and Afghanistan, there's an added challenge because we might have, let's say we have a brigade at Tainan. Let's say we have a brigade at Long Bin. I don't know the strength sizes of those bases at the time, but you might say, hey, to accomplish this mission, we need to have a brigade at each one of these locations. Gotcha. But now we're going to see where this creep starts to step in and where you start to see the need of, hey, it's a little more complicated than just having combat troops out there. You have to get supplies for these people. You know, it'd be great if they could get mail, um, but they need ammunition. They need food. 
They might need water being delivered. Depends on the circumstance in the area and what they have around them. They need equipment to dig in. They need replacement parts. Things break down. They need medical supplies. You have to keep these various outposts supplied. And you say, we'll take a helicopter. Well, how much can you fit in the back of a Huey at the time? Not a lot. Some. Not a lot. How about in the back of a Chinook? Still, a fair amount. But the back of a Chinook, we're talking about you know, one truck. And helicopters are being heavily used all across the country, but it's not an infinite resource. We don't have thousands available to do whatever we want at any given point. They're always in short supply. It's the same today. We always could use more of all of these things. We just, we just don't always have them. So what you end up defaulting to in Vietnam is the tried and true old method. It's not going to surprise anybody. Trucks. Put that stuff on trucks and drive it over there. There's not really a rail system to speak of in South Vietnam. We see that a little bit in, in World War II and different theaters we were involved with. We could start to utilize a rail system. Not really going to be a thing in South Vietnam. So we're going to get on these roads and we're going to drive trucks. Now, when we're talking about the amount of supplies you can move from one place to the other, it makes sense. Take everything else out of it, but it makes sense. This is going to be the most efficient, most effective means to get your weapons, your medical supplies, your food, your new soldiers from point A to point B. Because the back of one big truck, you can move about the same amount you might be able to put in the back of a Chinook. So if you can string together 10, 15, 20, how about 81 trucks? like Sergeant Say has done, 81 trucks moving from one point to another. Think of how many supplies you can get from one point to the next. And again, if you're resupplying a brigade, let's say that's three to 4,000 men, one truck's not going to do it. One truck might resupply a platoon. We're talking about dozens of platoons, hundreds of platoons. You, you You can't do one Chinook at a time. You can't do, you certainly can't do one Huey at a time. And all these air bases are, excuse me, all of these outposts don't have airstrips. They're not air bases. So some of them, you have to get this equipment out there. And, and the best way to do it is going to be with trucks. But that presents a problem. There's only so many roads in Vietnam. Even today, pull up a map of South Vietnam and it's not crazy. It, it's, there's a few main routes between these major cities or villages. And then there's a lot of smaller trails. Well, again, we're not driving, these aren't, these aren't, carton, you know, horses. These aren't motorcycles. These are big 30 ton, um, American trucks that are driving down these roads. There has to be some level of stability on the roads. They have to be of a certain width. The bridges to cross streams have to be of a certain, you know, rating to make this even worthwhile. So when you look at how we're going to get from, from an area like Long Bend to Tainan or back and forth, and you're planning the route, you don't have 30 options. You might have two. You might have one. And that's going to present a problem. Because if you have to get supplies from one place to the next, this isn't going to happen one time. This is going to be a continuous exercise. But so we're already talking about our, our, our troop strength, our, our, our creep. And if we have a brigade in two different areas, now we have to resupply the two. You've got at least a transportation company that needs to do that. So it turns out you didn't need two brigades. You needed two brigades plus these people to move these supplies back and forth. But if you just throw a transportation company out there on the road and say, good luck, it's a problem. They might not make it because we're in the enemy's backyard. They know what to look for. 
These convoys were moving at 20 miles an hour. It's 50 miles between these two areas. You know how much time they have to tip off their buddies down the road, the enemy, to tip off their buddies and say, hey, convoy coming. 81 vehicles. The gun trucks are vehicles 6, 12, 90. I mean, you can get a lot of information. And remember, the enemy that we're fighting in South Vietnam at this time is, is going to be North Vietnamese forces, of course. But Viet Cong as well, to blend in with people. So there might be somebody standing on the side of the road, marking down the number of vehicles you have, passing along to his buddy down the line, and you get attacked at a hairpin curve or wherever it might be. So you can't just send out a transportation company. You need to add some sort of protection. Now, these vehicles are not just sitting ducks. There's going to be machine guns mounted on many of them. There's Every one of the soldiers is going to be ready to fight as needed. And you're going to start... What we see in Vietnam a lot is, is a lot of military police kind of embedded in what we would call convoy security. It became a major part of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and to kind of bring this whole thing home, we're trying to figure this out in Vietnam. We didn't figure it out by Iraq and Afghanistan. There's not a solution here. You have to get these supplies from point A to point B. So you have to do it. You have to go along certain roads. What other options do you have? And generally, the solution that we've landed on is, as the U.S. military, because we are still doing it in Iraq and Afghanistan, is we have to go through some of these areas. We're just going to have enough armor and firepower and on-call support to push our way through the fight as needed. In a sense, it's kind of accepting we're not going to be able to secure the entire road. Let's just talk Vietnam. This is a 50-mile stretch. What's it going to take to secure that entire road? I mean, how many company platoon squad outposts are going to be needed all up and down that road to make sure that nobody ever gets ambushed on it? For 50 miles, you know, a battalion at least. Well, how many places can you do that across the country before all of a sudden you are in Vietnam and all of your forces are simply keeping the supply lanes open so you can stay in Vietnam? Do you see how this is kind of a circular issue? And you have to end up with, these forces to do these things like convoy security. And, and, and all of a sudden your numbers get higher and higher and higher because you need more people just to maintain. That's not even counting the guys that are going out on the search and destroy missions or trying to push back the North, Vietnam, North Vietnamese and Viet Cong forces from the Tet Offensive. Nonetheless, Sergeant William Say and his men take off on August 25th, 1968 on a resupply mission from Long Bend. They're heading to Tainan combat base in order to resupply. They have 81 vehicles. And as they're moving there, they start to notice some issues. They start to see certain areas and it's the same thing. It, it, these guys are attuned to it and it doesn't take long for them to notice, Hey, this village is a little empty. There's not as many people here as there should be. Maybe something's wrong and bam, they get hit. And if you think about a convoy and the way that that would get attacked, it's, it's not complicated on what you want to do. You don't want to let the convoy leave. You want to trap them. So how would you trap them? The same way that all of us get trapped on the road when there's a traffic accident or, or some major issue on the interstate. If you knock out the front vehicle, all of a sudden the convoy can't go forward. The road is closed. And remember, we're not talking about five-lane interstates here. We're talking about maybe a dirt road barely wide enough for these vehicles. So, bam, you knock out the first, second, third, something towards the front. Vehicle's disabled. They can't move forward. Convoy can't go forward now, can't exit this ambush area. But they can go back unless the attackers destroy vehicles in the back, which is what they do here as well. So, 
It's a smart enemy. It's a resilient enemy. It's a, it's an efficient enemy. We, we often don't give our enemies enough credit in warfare, but the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong were very, very smart. And they attacked this convoy, just like you would expect, knocking out the head and the tail. And all of a sudden, all the vehicles in the middle are now trapped. There's nowhere for them to go. Sergeant Say is in one of these vehicles in the middle and has to make a decision. The, the overwhelming firepower coming down on Hina's guys, there, there's the trucks are big targets. They're magnets for bullets and rockets. So he decides to exit the vehicle. He dismounts, takes cover. And as he does that, the enemy force is now assaulting into the kill zone, which is a common tactic. If you're, if you're putting together a, a solid ambush, the idea is going to be to pin down the sides, pin down the enemy, overwhelm the enemy, and then at some point assault through and kill everybody, right? You don't, the idea, technically an ambush isn't just designed to sit there and have a firefight on your terms. You're going to wipe them out. And the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong goal at this point in this fight is to wipe out the American forces and they are on the verge of doing so. We're talking about 81 vehicles, two to four people per vehicle. So you're probably in the 300 person range ish for the Americans. And it's a battalion plus size force that hits Sergeant Say and his men. So probably outnumbered two to one, fair to say, and on the defensive and with no place to go and stuck in a kill zone. It wouldn't be crazy for the 62nd transportation company in this instance to just about be wiped out. That's where Sergeant William Say comes in. So he takes up a defensive position and starts firing back in short order, kills a few enemy soldiers, sees a sniper in a tree. Again, this is a defended, this is a a position that was decided to be the ambush point. They didn't just bump into the Americans here. So they have snipers in trees that can look down on the American forces trying to hide behind these vehicles that they didn't know there were people up above. Say kills that sniper. And next thing you know, a grenade rolls underneath the trailer directly next to him. Now, when the enemy's laying down this volume of fire, you don't get to decide on the perfect covered position. And in this case, Say did not have the perfect covered position because that trailer right next to him was hauling ammunition. And I guess if you got the option in the midst of a firefight, that's probably not where you want to hide behind. And hide behind is not the right term. That's not where you want to take cover. But when the volume of fire is so severe, you got to do something. Well, Say sees this grenade. And it, at this point, totally reasonable to run, totally reasonable to take cover. Instead, he runs to the grenade, picks it up, throws it back, kills four enemy soldiers, saves the lives of at least the guys right next to him. But who knows? If that grenade had gone off, what would it have done? If it, How much within that ammunition trailer would have detonated? Say continues to fight. And before long, has the same thing happen again. The enemy, remember, they're assault, They're trying to assault through this position. They're trying to clear the kill zone. They're trying to reduce the entirety of the American footprint in this convoy. Another grenade shows up in this position. He again moves to that grenade, throws it back, saving his men. Once more, this time he's severely wounded in the right arm, right wrist area. Continues to fight, continues to motivate, continues to consolidate his men. And I should say that a call went out for help. At this point, they're stuck. But they did put out a call for help. And there are one of the ways that the Americans decided to do these convoy operations is there's always help nearby. It might be helicopter gunships, might be close air support, fixed wing. And almost always there was some level of infantry maneuver or armor units that could come in and kind of help clear up the mess, help, help beat back the enemy as needed. So there is an, a mechanized infantry unit nearby that got the call. But the problem is the volume of fire is so intense they can't get through to help Say and his men. 
which means that they have to fight it out until they can at least beat the back of the enemy enough to allow these reinforcements to arrive. Think about how the volume of fire they must be experiencing if the reinforcements can't even get in there. That reinforcement's a mechanized, armored infantry. That's crazy. Say continues to fight, continues to motivate his men, continues to, to ask them to hold on. It's coming. Help is coming. Eventually, he is in a ditch taking cover with his men when he sees a group of enemy fighters start to move around the side. Now, his right arm is about useless. Nonetheless, he stands up and moves towards the enemy fighters, firing left-handed. I don't know if you've ever done that, but it's just like anything else. When you try to do something right-handed, you try to do something left-handed, it, it, it maybe it looks easier than it is. It is so awkward. Nonetheless, left-handed, he assaults this enemy position and kills three left-handed. And not just, not just like he didn't want to use his right arm. He's bleeding out his right arm. At this point, he's suffering from severe blood loss. Makes his way back to the, the American line, if you will, the American position. And before long, is struck and killed by an enemy sniper at the age of 19. For his actions that day, holding the enemy off long enough to where eventually a reinforcement column would arrive and help move that convoy out of the kill zone for inspiring his men, for throwing back grenades that could have killed a team, three, four, five of his guys, could have killed him. But instead of throwing back grenades, dealing with an arm, losing massive blood loss, dealing with an arm that he can't use, to use his other arm to, to kill enemy soldiers to protect his guys once more, and eventually being killed by enemy fire. For his actions that day, Sergeant William Say would be awarded, posthumously, the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.